This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. This is Nabil Mahmood, your host at Nomad Futurist from Hawaii. This is Philip Koblenz, your co-host from Brooklyn, New York. And this is Gary Conley you, um, from Dublin. Gary, thank you very much for joining us. We've got three different time zones, roughly about an 11, 12-hour time difference. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and where you're at in your career. I guess I describe myself as a stubborn digital optimist who was possibly the worst COBOL programmer that was ever born. And that over the past three decades, I'm, I'm working towards my correct level of incompetence, working in and around data. Um, I love data. I think the power of data, it's always been one of those wonderful things that whether you're reading smoke signals across mountains or whether you're um, uh, just last week invented the next greatest AI algorithm, the power of the data uh, timely and accurate. Just it fascinates me. I never could do much with it. I could never work out how it all works. But I, I found because I was a really bad programmer, dealing with really intelligent programmers, they tend to like to talk in zeros and ones and binary, which the rest of the world doesn't understand. So I was like the meat in the sandwich. You've got a problem. They have the solution. You don't understand what they're saying, and they don't understand what you're saying. So I was the dude in the middle that was like the translator. And uh, uh, having a small appreciation for programming um, helped me uh, know that they were either bullshitting me fully or only a little bit. How did you end up picking COBOL as a language to code? (laughs) I think it, it, it sort of uh, picked me. It was the only program. If you're asking me right back to when I came out of school, I actually became a map maker. I was a, a, cart, a cartographer. Um, and my objective was that I would build these wonderful maps to help people build roads and services and civils. But I came out of Ireland in college in 86. And uh, unfortunately, we were just going through the transition uh, of a recession and the only place I could get a, 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 a job was in, in uh, Guam. And uh, I'm afraid I, I couldn't pay for the flight to go to Guam. So I became a soccer coach in North America. And to me, North America in the mid-80s was streets of San Francisco, Miami Vice, Kojak, and I ended up in a place, so you can imagine what I was expecting. And I ended up in Gannon University in Erie, Pennsylvania. Now, I have nothing against Erie, Pennsylvania to this day, but it wasn't Miami. Um, so I ended up coming back and doing a, a course in college to learn how to do RPG and COBOL. Um, and as I say, I really wasn't very good at it. I didn't have the discipline. But I, I could understand the spec, but I could never actually execute it. So that's how I started. And I, I then got out of that, and I was uh, uh, pre-sales, pre-sales support, um, right at the right time. Networking was starting to become the thing. 
personal computers were looking to be connected, mainframes needed to be integrated, uh, all these different cabling systems and protocols and all this other stuff that people had in their worlds complex. I was able to simplify it a little bit. And I was lucky enough, right? I was lucky enough. I became, uh, uh, set up my own business in 1990. And we subsequently sold it four years later. And it was a connectivity company. It was take all that stuff you have and just connect it all together so that you didn't have 40 devices on your on your table. You had one. Um, and that's really where I started to get my love for data because I realized that the mainframes may go. They may be mini computers. They may then turn to personal computers. They may be in the cloud. Or it might be all of bits of lots of things. But the main thing that remains is the power of the data that's traversing between them. And that, that timeliness and the accuracy of that has led now to, to a, a time where um, I work with some of the world's biggest foreign direct investment companies into Ireland who are using Ireland uh, for all things data, whether it's their back office systems, whether it's their data centers, whether it's their analytics, it doesn't really matter. It's about manipulation of the data. Um, and, and obviously where we work is we work with the people to make sure that it's hosted here or resting here. But it's an export business for us. So it's a long-winded way of uh, telling you how I ended up at Cobol. Um, I, have a, I, have a, I have a quick follow-up. Um, so I, I entered, I entered um, uh, UPenn as a computer science major as well, and I think I might have you beat as the worst programmer in, in the history of mankind. Uh, and while I was at school, I you know, quickly made the determination that just, this just wasn't for me. I was just convincing people to help me with their homework, and, and that's a nice way of saying, do, do my homework for me. In general, if someone is in programming and they actually go out into the world as a programmer and they determine they're fairly poor at that job, they would tend to internalize that and maybe look for an entirely different, you know, career path because they just think it's not for them. What gave you the confidence really of making that switch, determining internally that you weren't good at programming, but you were better at communications. And now, of course, you became, you know, the top evangelist in, in, in our business, to, to cert certainly in, in Ireland. But um, there, there are a few people that have a, uh, uh, an online presence like, uh, like the great Gary when it comes you to evangelism. So. Do you know what I think helped me greatly? Sport. I played a huge amount of sport. And what, did the, what does sport teach you, particularly if you play a team sport, is you realize very quickly, whether it's American football, baseball, soccer, or rugby, that there's all shapes and sizes that make up a really good team. And it's not always talent that is the, the, the differentiator between what makes you an MVP for that team. So I guess I was always, um, I played a lot of soccer. I said earlier, I, I was on a college scholarship, but I was never the silky skill guy up in the front scoring the goals or the goalkeeper. I was a big lump of a center half. And if you know anything about soccer, the center half stops the other guy with all the talent to score goals. <laughs> I always used to see that you were like the backbone of the team. You know, and in front of you, you had a midfielder and he was different. He was more nimble. And up front, you had this skinny dude that did nothing but score goals. So I bought, brought in the best of what I thought made a team. And whilst I was in a bad programmer, I could understand where they were coming from. So I could take that because I often think you're absolutely so right in what you say. We, we take failure for defeat 
And whereas actually it should just be like what we, a, a thing that we then subsequently call experience. I mean, in the experience to me is just a label I give for all the mistakes I've ever made in my past. And that's really how I see things is that, okay, you're going to make mistakes. Um, but I think as you rightly said earlier, um, just don't make the same mistakes as the last dude. Learn from his mistakes to make your own. And then hopefully you're able to say to some other guy, I'm not sure what your mistakes are going to be, but you're going to make them. Make them, identify that they are mistakes quickly and don't ponder over them. Just move on. Learn from it and move on. So I guess it was sport. I, I, I use sport a lot in analogies, a lot. And, and particularly when I'm talking to younger people in college and university. Um, because unfortunately, and I speak about the Irish and maybe European educational system, it's quite theoretical. You know, whoever learned to drive a car in a theory book? Nobody. So you try and teach them or talk to them about what they do know. And a lot of them are very good at sport. They understand sport, play with your head up, look around you, um, you know, look for differences in people. Because usually even in our life partners, if we were all the same, we'd actually then get very bored with uh, uh, um, the conversations, etc. So I think sport was one of the greatest things I knew more about and I'd experienced of. And uh, um, it's hard and collaboration. I mean, is, is sport the greatest collaboration success for us all to get behind? Probably. You have big ones, you have small ones, you have tall ones, you have dark ones, you have bright ones. Um, and I, I, I use sport as a great way uh, to bring me to the next level and, and, and try and collaborate with people. Yeah. That's uh, a great and a unique skill that you've actually developed and brought to the forefront. You mentioned earlier the challenge as for education in UK and in Ireland for that matter. We've got the same challenges in the United States. So what do you see the future of education? Are we looking at potentially exploring the idea of vocational schools whereby we expose kids and the younger folks to tools, resources, platforms, whatever the case might be as the new way of doing it? In the US, I'd say that we have not had an educational reform since the Industrial Revolution. We are stuck in doing things that we've been doing for a long time. Are you experiencing that there is a little more uptake in vocational education? Here's my thoughts on it. Uh, firstly, I'm very lucky. I have a, an 11-year-old here, and I have a 17-year-old. So for music, I know who Post Malone is. Imagine that, because I listen to him. So, you know, there's nothing like staying current with just the words and the jargon and stuff. Um, because then you can talk to them. And they're my greatest research and development tool, actually listening to their norms. Because I often listen to thought leaders from big companies and they're, they're talking about second and third hand stuff. They don't actually know that the kids already know that. The next generation know that. To your point, I think, and again, sorry to go back to my own case. I had a great advantage also when I was a kid because my parents had uh, the foresight to get me um, Britannica Encyclopedia for home. So when I came home, I had the equivalent of Google on the wall in 1981 where I could augment my projects with my school books with stuff from this. And the most important thing they did was they kept up with the updates 
So I don't know if you remember, you used to get an update every year. You were able to get the most up-to-date info. But now we're at a situation where Google and on other search platforms, it's sort of nullified knowledge. So now what we're at is how do you apply that knowledge? Because now I can Google now. You can, you can go to five universities, do 25 courses, be a master, be a doctor and the whole thing. And a, a quiz master could ask me and you a question. And you could have it in your brain, but I could just Google it and two of us have the same answer. So knowledge, unfortunately, has very little value. The main thing we need to teach our kids is application. How do you apply that knowledge? Because it still needs, you can tell people A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You can teach them grammar. But there's still a big difference then with somebody who really knows how to put an essay together. A start, a middle, an end, a summary. So I think what we're starting to see is those that are applying skills of application. But sport is a great way of telling a kid, it doesn't matter how fit you are, you got to apply yourself. It doesn't matter. So, so in terms of what we're finding is critical thinking skills are way more important now than ABCs, remembering all of the sonnets for Shakespeare or Chaucer or whoever. How do you apply that information? So what we're trying to do is, is and I guess this is in the industry itself, in, in the data industry, is to me to get talent into this industry is there's two words in data center data and center. The centers are a very set, different set of skills and they will develop over the years and become more efficient and stuff. But there was going to be a huge opportunity for the data side of this industry. How do you make the center more efficient? Algorithms, AI, all that type of stuff. That's how you attract in people to the industry, but you'll always have people, like in a, in a construction industry, you'll always have the builders. They're an essence of building, but really now the architects, the quantity surveyors, the engineers, all those people who maybe do the designing of it, that's how we have to make it more sexy. And talking about PUE is not sexy. Talking about what you can do with the data, like, Airbnb, like Uber, like Netflix, like that's exciting. That's, that's real disruption. That's changing the way people behave in the world by your efforts, not really by making a certain widget or a doofer half a percent more efficient. It's a bit like the engine of the car. Everybody wants to be the designer. Nobody really wants to fine tune the spark plug. Well, you get them in and then you send them down to, to find you in the spark plug. But don't sell it that way. <laughs> so what advice would you give someone wanting to enter into data center in the technology market space? I think the same advice that I give to anyone, whether you're young or old, do you like it? Does it fascinate you? Why are you doing it? Because the why is the real essence of everything. The how we'll get to. You know, but why are you doing it? What do you want to actually do? Why do you, for instance, do what you do today? Probably. question? Yeah, yeah. Why, yeah why, why do you do what you do? You probably love it. Uh, I think the, um, 
the question really is about what you enjoy doing, right? So I, I do what I do because I enjoy doing it. And something we try to say on the podcast over and over again is that, you know, what, what allows someone to be successful isn't that they are the best programmer in the world, but they very well might be, or the best data center engineer in the world or the best infrastructure guy, but they actually enjoy getting out of bed and doing what they're doing. And so many people try to focus their career journeys on either what they think is expected of them or where they can earn a buck. And they're still in this mindset of looking at a job as something that you do that's unenjoyable. And then you get to go home and, you know, just kind of decompress from that job. And certainly there's some element um, of decompression. Nobody can be on 24 hours a day. But in general, what takes some of that pressure off and what makes you successful is focusing not on necessarily your passion. There's a podcast I think we dropped uh, today or tomorrow with Christian where he, you know, distinguishes uh, between following your passion and following your desire. But just the notion of like trying to determine what you enjoy doing and making that like determine your career path rather than determining the career path first and then just kind of willing yourself to it, I think is, is a, a huge distinction that sometimes kids that grow up in um, an environment that is full of expectations that in many cases are unrealistic, sometimes lose. And, and also be, be, be kind to yourself. Allow yourself to say, I made a mistake. It's okay. I made a mistake. Got to be able to learn from those mistakes. Yeah. Exactly. Got to be analytic. I mean, going back to, so I played cricket growing up. So going back to that analogy, you've got to lift your head up and look around and be critical of yourself. But in a positive way, the glass is half full, learn from your mistakes and then carry on. I think you're so right. And, and, and it was amazing you bring up cricket because, again, I played cricket when I was in school and I played for a year and I was useless until a guy came from Sri Lanka and he said five words to the whole team. He said, cricket is a side-on game. That's all he had to say. And he said, you do everything side-on. You bat, your ball, and you throw. So we had a team that lost every match for a whole year. And the following season, we were actually reasonably successful. With five words, cricket is a side-on game. And that was it. And you know what I'm saying. You throw it, you bat. So sometimes... What that shows you is, listen, listen to a dude. He probably was told that by somebody. He probably learned so that, and I'm sure way back, learn from people's mistakes. Don't be afraid to listen. Don't be afraid to learn. Don't be afraid to experiment. But find something to your exact point that you like to start with, that you might love. If you're lucky enough to start off that you love it, you're in a very special place. Because I think... On this call, it's great and it's all the rest, but people like to earn a few quid, right? Or a few dollars. Yeah. And you do, you like to earn a few dollars and you like to get your first car and you like to whatever. But be always mindful that as you move on, try and err towards something you love, you know, and wherever that leads you is probably where you're going to be most happy. Because when you get to 24, like me, you want to be happy with what you do, right? Maybe I'm a multiple of 24. You look like a great 20. I mean, it's beautiful. You, you really Maybe I'm a job. multiple. Maybe I'm a multiple. Maybe I'm Benjamin Button. Maybe I'm going the other way. Right? <laughs> but yeah, that's a great point uh, that you bring forth. So the question that 
I would ask you, do you think that the, the generations prior are a contributing factor to that? Because it's a mindset that we've actually developed over the, the last few generations, whereby what's important is work, 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 and work. And you're in a very fortunate position, not like the Americans here, that uh, you know, you've got a definition totally incorrect. You tell in America it's work and life balance, not life and work balance. The Europeans are actually much better than us. Do you believe that it's the generations prior to us that have worked their tails off, that have gone through the worst times in their lives, such as the Great Depression, that is leading into uh, unbalanced life, and we are chasing everything monetary? Sure, sure, it's all an experiment, isn't it? Every generation is an experiment, you know, and, and unfortunately, as you know, every generation thinks they invented music every generation even though there's only 15 or 20 so you have to allow every generation that wiggle room as well to experiment and, and believe they've improved things and um, you know we're now three of us talking from in and in the middle of the greatest lockdown probably since mid last century a lot of people are looking at themselves they've i'm looking at a window here and i can see robins and you know, things change in the spring. It was the first year I noticed, oh, actually, things change in the spring because <laughs> I saw it in front of my nose. Um, and no matter how much money I have, no matter how big my car, no matter how much stature I have in the community, we're all sitting in the same spot right now. We can't do anything other than stay put. And I have noticed definitely, in my opinion, my children, as I say, the 11 and 17, they're gritty little people. We, we started to call them snowflakes, which is wrong because they aren't. They're gritty people. I'd suggest that they have nearly adapted better than the rest of us because <laughs> they're not full of this, oh, I can't drive my big car. I can't be this. I can't go down and buy a $40 steak. I can't this. They've just got on with it, a lot of them. In fact, now they're starting to teach us how to use uh, social media and these tools to better effect. Um, do I think that when we come out of this, everyone will start going around hugging trees? And, and uh, no, because it's, you know, eating bread is soon forgotten. But even if it changes one person to stop and think, about someone else, or one in 10, or one in 100. That's a far better place, because that's what we need to do. We need to actually stop thinking about just ourselves. Because my mother passed away recently, and about three years ago. And before she died, I said, so mom, what's, 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 in your opinion, what's it all about? She said, you know, peace of mind. So what does that mean? Peace of mind is when you wake up in the morning and you feel you could walk down any street in any city and people wouldn't be chasing after you. That's peace of mind. So she didn't mention money. She didn't mention cars. She didn't mention all the things you said. Just peace of mind. And it's an extraordinary thing uh, to think after 90 years, that's all she said. It's all about just peace of mind. And it was true. So... It's hard though, right? It's hard to say that to an 18-year-old. It's hard to say that to a 14-year-old. But, yeah. you, you know, ultimately, I think you're right. We now, all of us, have what would have been considered only achievable for the previous generation if you were a millionaire. 
a flat screen television, three holidays a year, pre-COVID, fly anywhere in the world. And yet we're still not happy, even though that was what we aspired to. And still we have an increase in mental health. We've got an increase in young kids' suicide. Um, so maybe this, what we're going through at the moment, is an opportunity for us all just to stop for a little bit. And some of us will change. Not expecting everybody to change, and just a little bit of time again. I, when you play sport, you realize when you're injured, it gives you a lot of time to reflect on how you play. You know, so maybe this is a little bit like a winged bird. We're just getting our breath a bit. Yeah, it's what? Mother Nature's way of resetting our lives, and uh, you know, maybe. giving us an opportunity to reevaluate. Maybe, maybe. I think one of the things, one of the things that that is. Um, so unbelievable uh, about looking at the time we're in now versus even, you know, the recent past, a few months ago, is in general, it's been difficult to, like, understand people's empathy. And I think the definition of empathy is being able to, you know, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And now, between class lines, between regions, between countries, you know, anywhere in the world, we have something that has been, you know, unachievable for, for over a generation, which is the idea of shared experience. We all collectively have the shared experience of being locked down, of all having to evolve how we deal with our day to day, despite where you are on the political spectrum. I mean, you've had to adjust you know, what you do on a day-to-day basis. And that shared experience, I think, is so much more valuable than is being being given credit for because I now have something in common walking down the street in Ireland with everybody um, else uh, that's, that's on that street with me in the same way that I would in Kona or in France or in Brooklyn. Um, you know, there might be slight differentiators there, but that shared experience, I think, is so unbelievably valuable going forward. And, and hopefully people, you know, keep it. And, and you know, when you feed that then into used use the words community, shared experience and stuff. And I work on the industry, the data, data center industry. I don't work in it. And it gives me a very unique perspective on it. And I'd nearly suggest, and I speak for Europe, possibly US, yeah, a little bit, is that there wasn't much swagger or pride in people who design, build, operate data centers because when they lift the paper they're just being vilified and beaten up about digital factories sure all they do is they consume energy but in actual fact what they were doing was creating and being the backbone of the industrial revolution 4.0 that's basically the data that was in the centers and i get back to the data is the equivalent of the steam in the first industrial revolution is the catalyst for the change. So we had this situation where everybody had to leave home. Factories were closed. People had to work from home. And suddenly people realized, oh, Netflix, data center, thermostats, data center, Zoom, data center. And what I've noticed, and I think it's great, is that the industry, there's a most important health line, front line healthcare frontline. And now there's a digital frontline and they have a sense of purpose. It's wonderful to watch the people who have been in the centers or on the centers feeling now they're actually part. And I don't think that's going to change. I think that people will greatly appreciate the work that was done and is being doing by the digital frontline to create the current norm. I don't think 
this is the new norm at all. I think this is just the current norm, which will evolve into the new norm once we're allowed out and maybe another year on. And then we'll have what McKinsey are now calling the next norm. Jesus, it's hard to keep up, huh? Well, that's the new norm. <laughs> the new norm is the next norm, is the current norm. But I think that that's the key thing. That's the message that we have. If we're trying to attract talent. You must have purpose. You must have a purpose. We, we, we started a thing last year. Um, we were really a host in Ireland. We, we basically promote Ireland and we also promote the Irish, right? And no matter how many gazillion watts of renewable energy the industry was buying, people just said, couldn't get it. So I started this thing called DCs for Bees, right? Why did I start that? Because my daughter came in here 11 years old and said, Dad, do you realize that we are the first generation, us gang, to know the enormity of the bee pollination problem. 50% are going to be gone, extinct in 50 years. And we're the last generation that can do anything about it. 11-year-old tells me in a project. I said, okay, that's the end of that. We'll do DCs for bees and we'll plant 100,000 trees and we'll save this and we'll save that. And suddenly what happened was we brought the community together, not talking about power or PUE or UPSs or data or anything, brought them together for a purpose. And the purpose was being able to go home to their kids and say, do you know what I did today? I went out and I planted 25,000 trees with another gang and they suddenly were able to talk about stuff. Purpose, a sense of purpose. It's a wonderful thing. To your exact point, you know, a sense of, of shared experience, all that type of stuff. The best fun we had all last year wasn't, boozing in New York or San Francisco or anywhere was actually planting trees, expanding hedgerows. And people still talk about it. It's a shared experiences. And it was a great thing because there's a sense of purpose. And um, so now when we're, we're talking, a big part of what we talk about is, and by the way, all the boss men of that company were up a hill and they get as dirty as you do. They're useless as you are, or they're as good as you are. And that's the sense of of community that we will attract more talent what's your purpose this is a thing they they taught me last year i didn't know what that meant i don't know if you guys know what it means but it's a big thing now purpose because they sort of know they can earn money we we didn't we thought we'd have to right. we, we didn't know we could earn money we didn't know that we could actually go out and get a job and get paid for these guys do they do, they have a sense they can earn money. So now they're sort of saying, well, what's the purpose of all this? Well, maybe bees could be it or what they stand for. You know what I mean? So in the current state of affairs where we're at, what do you think are the biggest challenges and hurdles as we move forward into this new and continuous definition of the norm? Unemployment, which in its pure sense is, is you know, you've got, certain industries will benefit digital industries will benefit you know is a great engineer that's working in the hospitality industry or the retail that are going to really get hammered is he a transferable skill to data centers absolutely if he goes good things the right way the right order for the right reasons in hospitality he can do it in data my greatest sense is like the last recession it's mental health mental health is the biggest challenge. We're already seeing it, uh, uh, certainly in Ireland, is that people's sense of 
purpose for themselves in their lives. Um, you know, the, the hunter, the farmer, the gatherer, it all goes quite primal when you're not look, when you're looking out a, of, of a window and you not only is your job gone, but your industry might be gone and you start to internalize and, and, and mental health is going to be in the short to medium term a, a challenge. Longer term, I think there's two other tsunamis coming. Uh, um, I, I, honestly, I think that current crisis on temperatures in the world is going to create a tsunami of migration of peoples away from in, uh, lands that can't be inhabited. Uh, you saw it already this year, earlier, or maybe last year in Australia with the fires and stuff. That's going to create a tsunami of people moving, certainly into Europe uh, and possibly up, up um, south in, in North America. Trying to accommodate that amount of people is going to be a real challenge, real challenge. Um, that, that, that's on a global socioeconomic. And then obviously climate change, whether you believe it or you don't believe it, whether you believe it's because of humans or whether you believe it's a cycle, it's happening. You know, again, I love my kids. They give me great uh, sayings to, 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 to bring to these types of forums. And they say, do you know, Dad, that if we continue the way we are, that Miami and most of, of uh, Florida will be part of history books, not geography books in 100 years? And once you get your head around it, it says, how do you mean? Well, they'll be under sea, so that you won't be able to see them anymore. They'll just be part of a history book, you uh, know. It makes the planet. <laughs> exactly. It makes it again. It makes it tangible. So um, we'll recover from this. I mean, in the short term, what's going on here at the moment is is we'll recover from this. We're resilient. People are resilient. Uh, the technology industry is gone through, as you saw. They anticipate that the what's it, they call it the digital transformation. Digital transformation of all industries, top to bottom, as part of the Industrial Revolution 4, has achieved in two months what they anticipated in two years. It's extraordinary. People who said it couldn't be done. You couldn't have eight to 10,000 people working from home for Barclays Bank. Guess what? There's eight to 10,000 people working, and they're not going back. They're not going back to eight to 10,000 people working in downtown New York or London. Because that's insane to have all those people like bees going into a city and then leaving. So I think socioeconomic changes that were said that would never work. Well, it's working. So all the detractors are going to have to, we're going to have to find a way to, so, so do we have, do we know what that's going to look like? No. But do we know that a blend of office and, and home working and to your exact point about, you know, am I living, am I working, am I working to live or am I living to work? Now we can sort of be more empathetic. HR people can be more empathetic. And actually, you know what? It'll probably get more staff because you're empathizing with me. I have two kids. I can only work three days a week. I think that's all gone now. That whole dynamic of if you want to work for us, you have to be in the office five days a week. That's nonsense. It's amazing. Over the last 10 podcasts or 11 podcasts, we've been talking about work from home, work from anywhere being the new norm and uh, people's efficiencies improving. The work quality is going to improve. The lifestyle is going to improve. And it's going to give the opportunity uh, whereby employers will hire the right people, no longer just bums in seats like the way you've stated. Uh, you're going to get the, the talented 
people up and uh, the ones that have been working the system are going to fall out. I'm not sure it's going to be as, as, as seamless as we might think because, I, you know, like all experiments, which is what this is, and, and, and this is like the prototype. Um, and now we're starting to see that people are working 37 hours more per week than they did. That's not sustainable. You're starting to see all sorts of other stuff. But in terms of a blend of the two, um, demonstrable evidence that it works or it doesn't work, that's that part that, you know, we've all worked or been part of companies where the guy is two years to retirement. It won't work. Why? Because he doesn't really want to change again. <laughs> you know, the IT dude who didn't want to go to the cloud. Why? Because he's got PCs. He understands their mainframes. That's all gone now. Organizations are going to realize that they're going to have to be flexible. They're going to have to be more dynamic. This may be something that, whether it's COVID-19, COVID-20, COVID-23, tsunamis due to uh, the earth changing its climate, the one thing that we're going to have to now uh, be more mindful of is that whatever you think is the norm could be just something totally different in a year or two. That's what we said earlier about learn from your mistakes, learn from your ignorance, learn from the fact that, oh, it's only in China. Oh, it's only in Europe. Oh, it's here. <laughs> Every, everything has become a global reach and it could be within a matter of hours. That's it. Learn, let's learn from each other. You know, as I said, we're only a settled tribe. 13% of North American people call themselves Irish. Jesus, if you all come home, we're goosed. <laughs> yeah, we love you. We love you. But don't all come home at the same time. Give hey, us some you settled in Erie, Pennsylvania. We're all allowed to come back to Dublin. I settled in Erie, Pennsylvania for all of two semesters. <laughs> And uh, I met some really wonderful people there from a community called the Amish community. And did I learn from the Amish? Absolutely. They, they trades people you've never seen making wood and carpentry and stuff. The discipline of them uh, was just awesome. And at a time when I guess they're still around and I guess they're still doing their thing, but they, the, the craftsmanship of uh, these people was wonderful. There's something to be said for that idea, right? That that idea of being self-sustainable and having a lot of those skill sets. Um, you know, you talk about the Amish community. We had Mark Dealey on on the podcast um, a few weeks ago, uh, and he was one of his main focuses. His main points is that you know people aren't going to understand you know how to make a fire, how to how to build a tent, how to build anything because you know those skill sets or, you know, have, have largely gone, gone by the wayside. So, you know, I think, you know, one of the nice things about the, the stay at home things is it's allowed us to refocus and recognize, you know, what we need to do. I mean, look, I wasn't really going to the barber a lot before this whole thing. So that hasn't really impacted me specifically. I don't know if you can tell, but I can do this haircut myself. Um, but you have people needing to, you know, cut their kids' hair. A lot of people that weren't necessarily cooking at home, having to learn how to cook and, you know, YouTube videos and learning how to do it. And a lot of, you know, the purchases that people make or have made during uh, this stay-at-home order, I think, will stick with them for years and years to come. And, and you know, that's something that's going to be passed down to their own children because they're not just focused on having to go to work and come home and then, you know, having to live all these lives. So, you know, that 
you know, return to, I guess, to a certain extent, simplicity because you're at home and because you have to, you know, get this stuff done yourself, I think will redound to future generations that will be exposed to, you know, doing things for themselves in ways that they might otherwise have not been. You know, I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not necessarily an optimist one way or the other in terms of whether people, I certainly don't think people are going to return to the offices. And I think the economy is going to go through a lot of fits and starts before we get back to normal. But there are a lot of positives that are going to come out of this. And to touch on one other point that you made, the idea that anybody wouldn't believe in climate change where, you know, with stay at home orders, you can now, you know, have a clear sky in downtown Los Angeles and you can see, you know, parts of Asia that were otherwise unseeable because of smog is something that is just willful ignorance, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Well, you know, as, as we said a number of times, it's demonstrable evidence now. Who would have ever thought that a dolphin would swim up to in Venice? Who would have ever thought here in Dublin that there would be more swans going up our main river than cars on the road? Um, there's a place and a time for everything, and this is a time not to be ignorant of science. An invisible, something invisible has nearly wiped us out. You know, of all the things that we thought was going to really disrupt us, it was going to be Amazon, Google, Microsoft. Yeah, it could have a nuclear war, right? But yeah. it's really a bio war. Gary, many science fictions present this dark vision of the future. Yeah. So based on this conversation, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of humanity? Optimistic. Optimistic. When you look back, I love history. Oh my God, do you, do you ever watch Tenements of 1960? Do you ever look at the poverty of the 40s, the 50s, the 60s? People no shoes, you know? And they were, you know, that was when George Orwell was predicting 1984, um, you know, Big Brother and stuff. Optimism, What what is optimism? Optimism is when you're not blinded by your own circumstance, when you see the quality of life of the planet and the people in the planet. Can my quality of life in Ireland improve hugely more? I don't know, actually. Can my children's quality of life? Depends what you call quality of life, right? Um, at this stage now, my sense is that people like us on this call um, we're getting, I'm having way more fun giving back than I am getting this way, bees and all this type of stuff. I will be optimistic that we have the tools and the mechanisms to use data to solve so many more problems than we ever thought we could. Ignorance is our biggest challenge. Humans are our biggest challenge, not computers. I'm not scared of computers. I'm scared, way more scared of people. Way more scared of people. Ignorance of, but that's the bit we need to, that's what democracy is meant to be all about, isn't it? Absolutely. That's, well, that's what it's meant to be. And again, democracies can make mistakes. That's okay too, because that's where you learn more by your mistakes. As we've said, we've, we've weaved this theme throughout this chat. Mistakes is okay. We spoke about Michael Jordan. What was it? 10,000 shots a year, two years to make that three-pointer at the end. And he said he missed most of them. 
So mistakes are okay once you learn from them. I would. I'd be. I'd be a digital. I'd be a stubborn digital optimist, as I said at the outset. I see so many more benefits of using data for good than the Armageddon of what people uh, call oh, data machines, the whole lot. Who wants to drive a car anyway when you can have a swivel car with your kids in the back and you can talk to them for four hours as you're traveling to the to the uh, seaside? Who wants to be driving a car getting all stressed out? So there's always different ways of seeing things. It's more efficient. It's better for the climate. Because if you ever seen me driving a car, start, stop, start, stop, gears, the whole lot. So you can see things different ways. Um, so I think I'm a digital optimist for sure. Um, and I always believed, and I always believed, going back to my soccer days, that of the hundreds of millions of people who watch cricket, or in my case, soccer, there was always a group called soccer hooligans, which were a minority, minority, minority that used to get most of the headlines. And therefore, even today, you like soccer? Ah, oh, are all hooligans. So I think that you, you should always not believe everything. You know, you say, oh, the Irish are all drunken bums. No, the Americans are all this. It's it's not that way at all. It's not that way at all. There are wonderful people everywhere. There are bad people everywhere. Ah, yeah. And Hopefully that, mankind learns from it. I mean, there's a lot of things in the history books that we should refer to. And I, I put myself as an example uh, over here. Uh, I've gone through a lot in the last 20 years of my career. Uh, particularly the last four have been totally, totally changing for me, whereby I was a workaholic. I, I uh, had the corner office and all that fun stuff, and I flatlined. Two heart attacks, dead for four minutes and 19 seconds, and here we are. Total different lifestyle. And uh, things that were important back then are no longer important. It's like you stated, right? You're going to seaside. You want to be able to have fun with the family. Who wants to drive? I want to have a good old time, enjoying the trip, and I really don't like driving anymore. It's, it's, it's the perspective. It's, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's a change. And hopefully, mankind learns from where we're at today. And we yeah. do better going to go forward basis. As we move forward, uh, what do you think are some of the valuable lessons that we should learn from the current situation that we are in? There was, there was a certain stage in this pandemic spreading where people were um, not listening to scientists. They just weren't because it wasn't their narrative or it didn't specifically feed into their own populist view um, of, of, you know, the way they saw things. And I think the same is true. And this could be the biggest benefit. We've said it many times is to save the planet, to save the, you know, the butterflies and the bees and the temperatures and stuff like that, is that we will definitely have to pay more attention to the scientists on that matter. And we'll have the first-hand experience of this, not listening to them at the right times. It was, it was quite unfortunate, isn't it? And it's probably quite a, a sensitive thing to talk about. Where it originated was an unfortunate thing because there's so much bias for or against that particular geography that it was all sort of clouded in all sorts of stuff. Data is the solution. Data is the solution, you know, for everything. The timely inaccurateness of the data that's in the centers that's been distributed at a nanosecond is what we can now start to believe in. 
we can start. The problem is, is that the background narrative and the anti-large IT companies is quite negative, which is crazy, right? Like, like when I read the US press, particularly, um, depending on where you are, you can get very negative towards the big, the trillion dollar companies. They're getting too powerful. They're this, that, and the other. And then you scratch it a bit and you realize, well, they're actually facilitating Netflix. They're facilitating the testing for all of the, the potential solutions to COVID, potential solutions to polio, potential solutions to all the others. That's all the data platforms that are actually part of the solution. That's where I look. That's why I'm a digital optimist. Correct. And no one's talking about that. So no. bad news travel fast. Well, you know, the, the, I, I, we mentioned earlier I was a really shit programmer. But it, that college I went to was also the College of Commerce and Journalism. And I arrived the first day. And my best buddy at the time went to be a journalist. And I went to be a really bad programmer. We met at lunchtime and he said, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. I'm absolutely devastated. I said, why? Why? You're only in a half a day. He said, I met the ex-editor of Big Paper. And all he said to us was, don't care how good you write. Don't care how flowery your stories are. If it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. That's all I needed to ever know about the press. If it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. And that's a bit like what we're saying about soccer hooliganism. Mm-hmm. Three million people go up and down Britain watching soccer on a Saturday afternoon. It's not really compelling. The Hooligans are back. <laughs> it's it's not frontline stuff. Two hooligans jump off the roof of a everywhere, and it's just you know that's just it doesn't bleed. It doesn't bleed. So I would definitely be more optimism. I think in general. I think in general. Look for the last for the last. Let's say 25, 30 years, if we're being nice, uh, there's been a focus, like you said, on, on sensationalism over, over actual news, right? And because it's sensational, every time there's a hurricane, there's all these unbelievable graphics. They've started naming things that aren't hurricanes now, right? Every winter storm has a name. Everything, you know, sex sells, violence sells, all of this kind of calamity sells, and all those news agencies in general are just trying to sell advertisement. So, you know, there's this balance where, you know, you go to a totalitarian society like maybe a Russia or, or a China and you have these state-run news agencies and obviously that doesn't work because then you have, you know, people controlling the narrative. And then you have an entirely democratized kind of news platform where, you know, it's just the loudest voice in the room ends up winning or you end up with, you know, what cable news has become over the last you know decade plus where you just have all these talking heads talking over each other and you don't actually get any information from it it's just you know it's like watching professional wrestling which frankly is is enjoyable but it's not really a good conduit for for news so how do you do that how do you balance that like what do you tell your kid like your kids are are smart in that and and my kids are, are much younger you know four three and seven but you know, they'll look to social media and try to weave in and out of the narrative and try to put information together and not necessarily rely on a television, which they probably don't even know at this point, has channels on it with actual news because there are so many other venues. But but how do you do that? How do you weave through uh, a lot of the nonsense out there? What do you tell the next generation to do where they don't get incentivized 
to create a social media platform that is, you know, a similar type of ghettoism where they're only friends with people that have their similar viewpoints and they're kind of compartmentalized in that way. How, how do you find that balance? You know, I, I gave that some thought only a couple of weeks ago. I got a brand new phone and uh, I looked at the apps that I had on it. And what I found is even with the apps I had, I'd gone very narrow and really deep, really narrow and really deep because you can filter out all the other stuff. And I went back to reading the newspapers, would you believe? Because why did I do that? Because now I read the paper and I see large cod caught off the coast of Bray. The records, I wouldn't know that, by a four-year-old child. And suddenly you're reading all sorts of diverse stuff that you could actually say to my 95-year-old neighbor here. Did you ever know that there was a large cod and he'd tell me all about? So what I did, I did it on purpose when we had the lockdown, is I picked back up my guitar. And suddenly I found that the guitar and the stories that I was able to sing through the guitar, my youngest girl got the ukulele doing stuff. Just doing stuff, to your exact point, just doing stuff creates other doing stuff, if that makes sense. And it's quite extraordinary um, through that and through table tennis outside. um, I've got to know them a lot better. um, And getting straight back to your point, maybe we talk too much. Maybe we should do things with each other a bit more. And maybe we should get to know each other. Yeah, because definitely, this is what I call, I gave a talk uh, recently, and it was called The Great Weapon of Mass Distraction. And this is it. It's a phone. (laughs) It's a phone. (laughs) The greatest weapon of mass distraction, right? And and that's that's sort of, put put that thing away for a little while. and, and see how things develop. You you mentioned the scouts and all these guys. They're, they're, believe it or not, in Ireland, they're on a massive rebound. And not just because of this, the scouts and the girl guides and the, the people are pushing their kids out to, to rub sticks together and make fires. Fire. You know, trying to get them back. Um, and what they've done, which is very clever in my opinion, is they've brought coding in as one of the disciplines. So rather having the rather than having sort of a camp of kids who like to rub sticks together and a camp that likes to do Python programming, they said, okay, well maybe those kids like to do both, and they changed, and they they have now where you, as part of learning do knots and learning to rub sticks and make fire, you do coding. It's brilliant. I mean, that's, that's I guess that's evo- evolution, isn't it? That's somebody using the head. And I guess that's to Nabil's point. It's uh, it's kind of this parallel track, right? You have the standard university, you know, process and the programs, which are really difficult to evolve. And you almost have these vocational systems that are, you know, being introduced into early childhood education or or you know whatever hobbies or or other things that that, that people leverage in their you know whatever spare time is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, you're you're kind of vocational learning at this on the same track as traditional learning. It's really interesting that you say that because there's a club that was started in Ireland, programming geek. He wasn't a sporty guy. It's called Coder Dojo. And it's worldwide now. And it was very simple. Talking about keeping it simple. Dojo. He picked a word. 
dojo. And what dojo means is I will teach you only on one condition. You know all the martial arts dojos. That dojo bit is because I will teach you on one condition. You commit to teach others. That's what a dojo is, right? So he took that and he called it Koda Dojo. And he said, there'll be two rules. The first rule, be cool. Whereas, you know, don't get uptight, be cool. The second rule, which is just genius, you know, you look for genius, ask three before me. So what did he mean? The traditional educational system is, I am the teacher, I know everything. I'm the teacher, I'll tell you what to think. Ask three before me means ask two of your peers or three of your peers before you ask me a question. Because guess what? The smart kid is probably the mischievous kid. The smart kid is probably bored out of his head. The smart kid is probably the one that wants his peer to see him as something other than. So he becomes the educator. And suddenly you've got these kids who you know, are teaching each other. And, and it ends up that the mentors, they just turn on the Wi-Fi and make sure the kids don't invent some porn site that they'll all go to jail for. <laughs> but effectively, he becomes the facilitator. So ask three before me, in my opinion, was just genius, absolute genius. Because we all know the kids that are really great at programming, but they become slightly socially out there. And what they need is social skills. So they're dragged back by the other kids. Hey, tell me how this works. You're so cool. I think you're great. Those kids are the ones that need their, you know, their social skills boasted. And it flew out of the traps like a rocket by a 16-year-old, four 12-year-olds. You know, so I learned that. And I, you learned that. And now I've told you, you can tell others. But sometimes, you know, it's, 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 the solution is in plain view. Um, and so honestly, the, the mentors just turn on the Wi-Fi and make sure that they don't set fire to the place. Brilliant. What, what a brilliant story. So if you look at the data center industry, you look at the tech guys, you look at guys like us uh, that are on the podcast, we transition has taken us 30 years to get to where we're at today. We were, we were the cool kids, but the cool kids were under a stairwell coding to now having the corner office and making sure that the world is connected. Let the record show that Nabil was one of the cool kids. I'm not sure that I fall in the same category. <laughs> I was definitely I was definitely banging the football against your corner office. I wasn't. <laughs> but it's interesting what you're saying. What defines, uh, and this is one of the things that's fundamentally changed because of the industry that you guys have built, is that uh, if you were going to be successful, give or take, the model was you had to have something so unique that venture capitalists would put money into you that you could then buy a load of kit that would develop it and prototype it and stuff. Now sure you just have an idea and you could test it as a service with Amazon, Google, Microsoft as a service. You don't have to even go to get your prototypes going. You certainly don't have to go and work for Bell Labs with a big weight coat. Um, so it allows you the whole dynamics of this as a service OPEX model means that you get like the last recession. When you, you know, the reason that I know we're going to be fine is that if you look at the last recession, look what came out of it. Uber, Spotify, Airbnb, Netflix, you know, all those companies came out of the middle of, of the last great recession 
because they had to innovate. They had to get on. And they didn't have to have a lot of money. They just had a few quid to get AWS or Azure or something like that. Whereas before, it would have been, I can't do anything because I need... 15 sun sparks and I need another 25 operating systems licenses, you know, all those inhibitors are gone, which helps greatly when you've got a young kid in Namibia with a Huawei uh, mobile phone, who has an idea, he can actually prove the concept. Um, the way we typically, you know, wrap these uh, podcasts up are to, you know, kind of get your final thoughts on what you would say. It's it. I only had this discussion with, uh, my older girl um, yesterday, where I asked her about me. I asked, asked her, I asked her, I said, uh, what do you think now you're becoming, she's a young woman, right? What do you think I've taught you more than anything? And she said, be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. We put, we we're often, we're our greatest critics, we're our own greatest critics. Be kind to yourself. You know, be nice to yourself. You know, we talk about being nice to other people and all the rest. It's a bit like that old saying, how can you love someone else unless you love yourself? And that can be taken as being narcissistic and it can be this and that and the other because that's all got lost in the translation. But like yourself, if you can like yourself in your behavior and be kind to yourself and conduct yourself, I don't think any of the platforms, you, you'll conduct yourself accordingly then on the platforms. And don't be somebody else. Be yourself. You saw me on this. Find your words. And she said to me, she said, yeah, she, I think that's the one thing you taught me, Dad, was to be nice to myself. Give myself a bit of slack. And it was interesting. So I guess that's what I'd say to give yourself a bit of slack. Be nice, you know, be kind to yourself. Be nice think, to yourself. I think it makes sense. You know, the, the one of the things that, that sometimes is lost with bravado and with people that are uh, narcissistic and, and, and are just mean in general um, is that they're not mean for this because they, they really hate someone else or they're, they're more fearful. It's kind of inward looking. You know, they're that way because there is some limitation about themselves that they're trying to hide. So inherently, you're, you're, you're right, right? If you, if you can find peace with yourself, just like your mother said, if you can find that peace of mind with yourself, you're inherently going to just be a better person, both personally and, and professionally. Fundamental 101s of being a nice person. It's amazing. You know, you're the most beautiful smile, Nabu. It's amazing the reaction that it has on us. Oh, look, I'm smiling now, too. It's amazing. It's, it's just a, a thing is that maybe we just have to be nicer to each other. And then you just, you don't know where it will bring us, will we? To summarize what you just said, love yourself, live your life, and be a change agent and make this world a better place. I think so. I think so. Be yourself because everybody else is taken. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.